everybody. Welcome here. This is The Extra Podcast, episode number 234. My name is Paul Siemens, one of the associate pastors here at Northview. With me is Greg Harris. Hi, Paul. Hey, Greg. That's good great, to have great. you here. Do you know, I've always found that the introduction piece of our podcast is one of the more difficult um, <laughs> sections. It kind of is. It is. I don't know. I don't actually know how to respond. My, hey, name, is, my name is Jeff. It's really nice to see you today. Hey, have you seen... Uh, That'll do. Have you seen that video of the sumo wrestlers trying to sprint the 40-yard dash? <laughs> no. Can't Sometimes yeah, that, like, it's so, so slow and awkward in the going. I've often thought that's what this podcast is like. <laughs> Bunch of sumo wrestlers trying to sprint. Yeah, it doesn't start with quite the bang that we always want it to. Hey guys, I'm here. It's oh. good to see Andy. Thanks for being Man, here. You're oh yeah, you are here. Hashtag Steiger. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Is there a money sign on that S? There is. Yeah. <laughs> Eat your heart out, Kesha. Wow. Who? Even Kesha stopped I don't doing even. it. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just... That's because she's weak, Greg. <laughs> So let's get into a couple of questions. First thing is a uh, more of a comment, really, from what one podcast of our is this? Two thirty-four. Oh, okay. I just I need. I'm keeping track over here. <laughs> and while we're sidetracked, if you have more questions to send in, send them to extra at northview.org. Paul, Ken, before we get into this, I'm sorry. I know that those people out there are like, oh, they almost got into it without the dumb banter, but. Here we Paul, go. Paul, I've got a question for you. Today, <laughs> Ask. No, uh, when you came and you interviewed for the teaching associate program, you oh, wore yeah. a tie. Mm. Today, you're wearing a t-shirt that says, not a creature is stirring, not even the cat, from National Lampoon's Christian Christmas Vacation, and you're wearing a sandbar Florida hat. Yeah. Uh, hat, yeah. Yeah. Have you showered recently? <laughs> <laughs> I did this morning. Okay. Dude, I was then, here. But then you put on your work, you put on your, on your like, I'm going to roll in the mud clothes. I, I was here at 10 to 6. Okay. And so, yeah. I did shower, though. I just didn't want to do my hair. You yeah, know what? Because that and, takes so like long. That. And I didn't want to iron another shirt, so I just grabbed this one. Got it. And I thought, hey, this is the closest thing I have to a tacky Christmas okay. sweater. And well, listen, that's probably one of the best scenes in the movie, when the cat... Dies. What is up with the, what yeah. is up with the the dress code here at Northview? Because Greg, you're wearing a white undershirt. Andy, I'm wearing a, Andy, I'm wearing a t-shirt. Well, it's an undershirt. <laughs> this is you a got t-shirt. Like, no, nah, those were three for five dollars. Listen, it you was. and I both know that. <laughs> Dude, I outdress Costco you guys special. every day. Every I know. Day. I'm wearing a sweater today. Okay, but you're not even the competition. I mean, out Jeffy, out dressing Jeff. I mean, it's not hard. You, yeah, if you put on some clothes. Oh, look, you did it. I had one of our. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I had one of our. Uh, I had one, somebody in our office the other day uh, at the Mission Campus. I was working up there, and and uh, she turned around and she started giving me information on how all the things I wear are awful. <laughs> she kept, just trying she to be a blessing I know she was like so that shirt's terrible and why are you wearing those shoes with those pants and do you have any idea at all how this looks to the rest of us so thanks for that uh, do you know the part that gets me is <laughs> I don't care is, that's the problem that I have with I all would, of it well I just gotta bring up okay first of all there is a wonderful Christmas play being put on right now called how Wave Snackle stole Christmas, I believe. Yeah. At any rate, uh, the angel Gabriel and Abe make an appearance in this production. And who? Abel. Abel. Oh, was it Abe? Abel. What? Abel. It's Abel and Gabriel. Abel and oh. Gabriel. There we go. And uh, so Jeff and Ezra. And so you're, you're being recorded. That means you would have an opportunity to pick 
the outfit you would wear, Jeff. Mm. No. Behind the scenes. Comes in with shorts, t-shirt, and a uh, button up. Here's the rest of the story. At least it's in black and white. We actually arrived (laughs) at the filming location thinking that they would have costumes for us. When we arrived, we realized that they did not have said costumes. So it was a choice between uh, what we were wearing or nothing at all. See, I and so we you, you made the better of the two. Yes, <laughs> we, we decided to, we to go you. with it. Ezra, actually, in the video, the, the, if you've gone to the Christmas play, he's got a cell phone holster. I noticed that as well, yeah, because every, every angel needs yeah, a cell phone so. holster. <laughs> I don't think realism was what we were after in the, in the scene. Anyway. It, it was, was good, though. It was effective. It was, good. That's, it was how, effective. Well, that's how the Lord connects with angels. I would have loaned yeah. you one of my it's white shirts. Phones. I got three in a pack. I so bet you did. I have two extra got still <laughs> around at any time. I know. You open up Craig's closet. Any, that's what it is. White t-shirts. Just Costco's Kirkland brand t-shirts. No, you could deny it. That's what I'm that is. I'm not denying it. It's a white t-shirt from Costco. <laughs> at, least and I was, at least it's clean, Greg. And I was wearing it under a, under a, like a zip-up thing. And I was warm, so I took the zip-up thing off because we're on radio. Okay. Well, back to the questions then. No, yeah. Well, what was the question? Why don't you wear ties? That's the question. Oh, yeah, ties. No, I just no. thought that it was. I, I feel. I feel, Paul, like we have. I have deadened your sense of style. That's kind of what I. You I should. Do, that's watch, what I do to no, people. Anyone watch my, in my video. <laughs> watch my video from Sunday night. Oh, did you? Okay. Oh, but no see, tie. I, I but wasn't def- around at that style, time. Some style. Yeah, okay. definite. Not a boy. Mm-hmm. Good. So, uh, all right. So we've got something. What is this here? Uh, a comment basically sent in. Hey, extra. Hey, Greg got all his facts incorrect. It wouldn't be the first time. Which is not abnormal. <laughs> and actually, this is from our good friend Jonathan. Did it say Giesbrecht. on there? Did, oh, okay. I'm like, did it say that's not abnormal? Jonathan Giesbrecht says yeah. this. Greg got all his facts incorrect, which is not abnormal. You get used to it after a while. Oh, man. Technically, when I was on Canadian Idol, I made it through four rounds of eliminations. Wow, Jonathan, that's good. And was eliminated in the second round of Toronto auditions. Also, I wasn't in Jacob Hoggard and Shane Weeb's year. I was two years after them. Smell that? Smells like Shane Weeb. Weeb. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> So is this... Anyway, also, Jeff, I was advised to go by my choir director, probably mostly because he wanted Greg to sing the solo, and he didn't know how to tell me directly. But either way, get your facts straight, podcast crew. Hmm. Well, we, uh, we are rightfully shamed. I need to issue a public apology for getting my Canadian Idol facts mixed up. Is Canadian Idol still on? Surprisingly, mm-hmm. I respect don't you believe more so. now. Was Jonathan's year the last one that they had? No, it was <laughs> It was up there. My thing is that it doesn't matter what round. I don't think he was on the show. Like, he might have been in the competition. Do you know what I would like to do at some point is actually have Jonathan here on our podcast giving a little bit of background on what... What does it look like to be a Canadian Idol? Mm. And maybe a demo of what he's contestant, because I would like to know kind of behind the scenes stuff there. I could. It would be really great if we could get in like Christmas special. uh, The Weeb. Shane Weeb. This is a shout out to Shane Weeb. Hey, you know Shane Weeb. Yeah. You You should get him in for an episode. I'm going to ask some questions about Canadian. Yeah, Shane. We need you on here. Come on. As long as you bring a bottle of your new scent. We, sh- we need to get this sorted out. We yeah. need to get Shane Weeb on this true. podcast. Yep. Maybe for episode 250. We stand corrected, though, Jonathan. 
Sorry that I didn't get Canadian Idol stuff right. Anyway, yeah. So, Jonathan, please forgive these guys. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Uh, so, uh, to our first real question, uh, a couple weeks ago we talked about the flood, and this listener sent in, sent in this lesson. Wouldn't the flood have had to be global? Because God promised not to do it again, and there have been there have been many localized floods since then. So if it was localized, then what would God mean? Then that would mean God broke His promise, wouldn't it? So I think this is a really good argument for a global flood. Just so you know, and this is somebody I was espousing uh, I, my current belief, which is that I, I lean a little bit toward the global, the, the local flood idea because of the way that language is used in the ancient world of uh, whole earth and those sorts of things being the region in which we live or the whole known earth. I can show you examples of that in scripture um, where the language of the whole earth and everybody refers to the, just the region. I think one of the passages that I brought up actually is a passage in Acts where it says that in the hall of Tyrannus where Paul was preaching, all of Asia heard the message. And Well, that's kind of hyperbolic. It's not all of Asia. But with the flood, you've got a different situation in that the flood is actually, uh, I mean, there's a theological point taking place is that God is actually wiping, wiping it away and starting over like it's the new, uh, you know, you go to Genesis 1 and you compare the language of Genesis 1 with Genesis 6, for example, it's very similar, and that's on purpose because, you know, the writer of Genesis is trying to say, look, the, the, this, is a, this is a reset in many ways, that sin has gotten so great that God is going to actually wipe it clean and the spirit in the form of the dove is going to be hovering over the waters again in the same way in Genesis 1, the spirit was hovering over the waters. So I do think that there is some, uh, a lot of, a lot of, of evidence and um, biblically so that leans toward a global flood making sense. I will say this though, okay, so just to argue a little bit on the other side, that the language that's that's being um, brought up here about, oh, God, God said that he would never have a global flood again. I, I, the language actually goes like this in Genesis chapter 9, verse 8 through, I'll read through 11. It says, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock and every beast of the earth with you as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast on earth. I establish my covenant with you and that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. I think the idea here is that all flesh won't be caught off, won't be cut off. And so when it's talking about all the earth, I think I think that's the idea. And so I, I I'm not saying that that uh, it's necessarily overreading this text to say that no. See, this is direct support for a global flood because if I believed in a global flood, this is one of the passages that I would immediately go to. I will say. That I'm not sure that it it necessitates a necessitates a global flood because I think the intent of the author is to talk about how God is not going to destroy human beings again. I think that's the intent. Hmm. Uh, I may be mistaken there. Again, this is not a hill I'm really willing to die on. So uh, I'm I actually really appreciate the response by the by the the, the podcast listener. Because I think it's a good it's a good text to make you think a bit about what this says. I mean, Paul, you you were reading earlier a passage out of Matthew two, which I also think is really right. Yeah, Matthew twenty four, 
uh, starting in verse 37, says, For as we're in the days of Noah, this is Jesus speaking here, For as we're in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the, day, coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Yeah. So this text seems to be indicating that God's, uh, the, Jesus' point seems to be that it's the, the flood will come kind of, uh, the flood came when no one expected it in the same way that the coming of the Son of Man will come in a way that nobody expects it. So that, that seems to be the intent. Mm-hmm. However, it sure seems like uh, the theological idea of wiping out all of humankind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the piece that I think is the strongest evidence or the strongest uh, thing leaning toward a global flood. Yeah. Yeah. First Peter 3, there's another one mm-hmm. uh, that says, For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he also went and made proclamations to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Right. So that's another defense. Right. Greg, where are you on this uh, debate? I see you sitting on the fence over there. Hmm, it's quiet over here. No, yeah. That's why I've been quiet is because it's an issue I haven't done a whole lot of heavy investigation in. I've typically been kind of... Is a- agnostic's not the right word to use about it, but I've been swayed both ways depending on the arguments just because I haven't done... This is one of those places, though, where you get a local flood. Uh, we actually have archaeological evidence for right around this period for there being a local flood in this area. And so this is why people will argue for a local flood is they'll say, look, it's, it's, it's actually, there's the evidence. We, we actually have it that a local flood took place around that time in that region. That must have been, that must have been what he's referring to. Uh, there, are, there are some phrases, even though some of the ones that we've read here, that are difficult to, to, to understand with, with just a local flood. There are ways to do it. Uh, I don't know how honest they are with the text. Mm-hmm. So that's where kind of where I sit right now. Oh, I, I'm very much on the fence about it, although this question actually has reminded me of some of the biblical evidence and pushes me far more toward the global. Yeah. Except the problem is that we don't have the archaeological evidence, so this is difficult, mm-hmm. right? Although some people would... I, I actually read a book years ago called <clears throat> The Genesis Flood that claimed mm-hmm. that, that the whole Earth and what it looks like at this person at this present moment is due to a global flood. So, in fact, some of the ways that we, some of the things geologically that we attribute to glaciation are actually flood. Uh, yeah. I, I don't I don't know. I mean, my father was a geologist, yeah. so I'm not overly convinced by all of that. However, I, I certainly right. do think that there are, if you go to the, the eastern Washington State, for example, and you look at the Palouse, and if you look at, actually from space at the Palouse, it sure looks like the bottom of a seabed. Mm. So uh, that's... I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a total yeah. novice when it comes right. to some of that. So there are some... I have a friend who... Well, a couple. I have, I have one friend who's a geologist um, and geotechnical scientist as well. And um, he said... He was talking... I asked him, when you drive to Squamish, uh, when you're across... When you're on the highway and you're in front of the chief, on the other side of the highway, there's this big smooth rock. And it has these uh, horizontal lines in it. 
And I asked him one day, I was like, what's up with those lines? Because he lives in Squamish. And, and I said, what's up with those lines? And he explained what they were, whatever. And he said, yeah, when the, when the glaciers receded, mm-hmm. it would have caused that. And I said, okay. I said, so um, I said, what about this option? What if there was fast rushing water, like in a large amount, like the flood? He's a Christian, so he knew what I was talking about. And he was like, yeah, that could do it too. Yep. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, and then the other guy I know is a helicopter pilot, and he landed on top of a mountain um, somewhere on Vancouver Island. And he landed on top of the mountain with his helicopter. for he's a, He does logging work with his helicopter. And he lands up there, gets out, and he looks at the ground. He's like, this isn't gravel. This is actually seashells. Mm. He's like, what's up with that? How some, can there some be dude that many? brought some seashells up there. Yeah, and it's just, just like, <laughs> and it's just like this There's massive really amount, right? <laughs> and so, so he's just like, well, in his mind, he's like, there, that's evidence for it. So, yeah, and that kind of thing has been. There is some evidence like that around other parts of the world. I have, I have actually read. If you are interested in this, I wish I could give you more, a bunch of references and things like this. This is a live debate, and I, I feel, I feel like I have extent gone to the extent of my knowledge of yeah. this particular debate. But there are people, if you want to Google this or others, I know that the one of the famous books is called The Genesis Flood. I imagine there are some responses to that book from Probably, people who yeah. disagree. So like, mm-hmm. if you're interested in this whole subject and you want to look into it, mm-hmm. the, you should just look at the, that, that book, The Genesis Flood, which is published, I want to say, in the 80s, 90s, 80s, something like that. And you could actually go and, and have a look at some of the material and some of the responses that have happened uh, recently. So one, one question is, because of the those New Testament references that were brought up seem to be focused, the Matthew one on the surprising nature of Christ's return and the Peter one on the extent of destruction that will come. On on human beings. On human beings. So my question is, is how much are we reading into um, biological evidence into those if the author's intending to talk about the surprise factor and the extent of destruction on human beings to say, well, therefore now that, that tilts us closer to, to global flood. Right. I'm so, just wondering why, why, why make that connection explicit? Because it would explain the texts well. Uh, Greg, you're, Greg, you're asking a really good question, or making a, I think you're making a really good point, which is that the, one of the challenges that we have in Scripture is to read it fairly but not overread it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not in any way suggesting somebody who believes in a global flood is overreading mm. the text. Uh, however, th- there's what the text says, was, there's what authors mean in their context, and then there's what we perceive to be uh, clear implications. That's often the way we say it. When the, Sometimes the text certainly is explicitly giving that implication. Other times it's not, and I'm, I'm a little bit uneasy with the, the clear implications. That's the language that's used, clear in air quotes, right? I'm a little uneasy with the clear implication discussion when the passage itself doesn't seem to be uh, saying explicitly those things. I hope that makes sense. I, I, I think there's a danger in overreading the Bible. That's right. what I'm saying. And my the reason why I brought that up was I was just stewing on the comment you made that too you can treat those passages in a way where the flood could be localized but you'd be something about doing harm to the to the text or the integrity of the process and that was what sparked the thought was what would be harmful about reading or saying it could be both from this text's unpacking of it because the intent of the author is to talk about the extent of destruction and the surprisingness of it coming 
So, so is that the clear? Just so it's just so we're clear for people who are listening. One of the the so, for example, if the intent of an author is to talk about the surprising, you know, ferocity and immediacy, right? That 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 Jesus' return is going to have, and he compares it then to the flood. To read that passage as describing the flood as being any more than an immediate, like surprising thing, is to overread it. Right, because the intent that the author has there is to say something about that fact of it. We tend to read the Bible though and look for clues regarding the flood by the language that's used by those authors when those authors don't actually have any intention of including those clues that we're looking for. Do you understand? So as a result, this is what I mean by overreading. There are places where you just have to be really careful with saying as much as the Bible says, but not saying more. I'm not, again, I want to give the caveat, I'm not suggesting that. I think that the global flood viewpoint actually does explain these texts well. Um, is it necessary? Which is what you're asking. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'd have to look at all the passages, right? I'm also thinking about Second Peter 3, not 3 as well, which also includes a discussion about the flood. I do think one of the compelling ideas here, theologically, is that everybody on earth was judged. I think that's 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 true. That's what the Bible teaches. Everybody on earth was judged. And so if you say it's local, if we say it's local, then we're we're stuck with a bit of a problem there. If there are other people alive at that time, what does that do? What does that do? What one of the things that I find as a part about this debate, I, I see what you guys think about this, is it seems that people want to make this though a, a question about faith and whether or not you're taking the Bible seriously or not. And that's one of the challenges that I find though when I'm talking with Christians is that it's like this liberal meter, right? If they mm-hmm. start to... I'm, sn- I'm sniffing liberal, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like As yeah. though I'm not willing to take the Bible seriously if I'm wondering, okay, is this a local or global flood? It's like, no, 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 it has to be global flood or you're not taking the Bible right, seriously. Right, but you see what they're doing, though. They're saying, look, there's passages like we just read in Genesis 8 that say these things and you're ignoring them. Or at least that's the viewpoint that those people have. You're just not even, not even dealing with those. I, I, the, the approach I think we ought to take here is we ought to get all the relevant biblical material on this. We should read each one of those passages in its context, figure out what we believe the Bible is explicitly saying regarding these matters. And then we should say, okay, we think the Bible teaches this. At that point, then you can compare it to archaeology and other things. If there is a local flood that is, is demonstrated through archaeology in that particular time frame, then it, that might be what's being described here. It might be. And then maybe you go back and you revisit it and say, oh, okay. This, by the way, this is what happened with, uh, with I, th- I want to say Copernicus. Oh, my history is not very good here. But the idea that, that the earth revolves around the sun was a viewpoint yeah. that many people had. The Copernican revolution. Or sorry, that the sun revolved around the earth as opposed to the other way around. That a lot of the language in the scriptures, there were, there were Christian people who were saying, no, but the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that the sun revolves around the earth, right? Because it talks about it rising and setting. Uh, I mean, I've, I've read a few people saying that back back in the day, and when you study this subject. But because of the of the scientific discoveries, people went back and they read the passages and they thought, "Oh, I wonder if we overread that, or we didn't read it with the intent of the author in mind." When the author is talking about rising and setting, it's talking about language of appearance, right? So this this kind of challenge is a live challenge, not just with global flood or local flood, not just with the Copernicus stuff, but but also um, the Adam and Eve discussion now, which is about the historical Adam and Eve. We're facing the same kind of challenge because we know more about DNA today. That doesn't mean that our minds are completely made up about the DNA stuff and where it all came, you know, like uh, 
whether, but it had, does have some bearing on how we understand whether or not there was a, whether or not Adam and Eve were human beings like you and I, or hominids, or, or what. And so, to immediately say that somebody who's raising questions about that is a heretic and doesn't believe the Bible, I just, I think we should just hesitate a little bit on that. And I think it was Andy's was, I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah Andy. I mean. We might come to the point where saying, no, this is what the Bible teaches. It's obviously clear. And so so we're going to either go with Scripture or we're going to go with contemporary science. And, and then maybe there are gonna, there's going to be a point where that happens. I don't think we're there yet. I think there's lots of ways for us to reconsider some of this stuff. It's not uncommon for us to realize that, oh, the way we've read this all these years hasn't been challenged by some of what we know about science. So I, again... I'm I'm not trying to belittle what the scriptures say. I'm just we tend to, we sometimes have a habit of overreading it. And maybe it should be maybe it'd be good to be clear that we we do believe that there's a historical Adam and Eve. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just cognizant of the debate, right? Yeah. And yeah. I don't want. And to sh- I actually went to a I went to we've a, been to a number of them at ETS. Actually. I went to a uh, a thing that where these two guys one was a one believed in theistic evolution, which is that God used evolution to create. Uh, man, and the other was a um, a young Earth creationist who believes that God created man special, uh, separate, and breathed life into him, that kind of thing. So, um, and these two guys got up and debated, and both of them were were geneticists uh, and dealt with DNA, and and both of them used um, information about DNA to defend contemporary science. And both of them, yeah, yeah, and both of them had stuff that backed up their individual view, but they weren't actually able to refute each other. And I was sitting next to a guy named Hugh Ross. And Hugh Ross is pretty much the the definitive voice on old earth creation <laughs> that's out there. And and I, I, so at the break, I looked at him and I said, so what do you think of this? He's just like, you know, he goes, this is just a, this is a ridiculous conversation. We don't know any, we don't know near enough about DNA right. to be able to make this decision. And so the fact that they're arguing about this just does not add up. Yeah. So here's so the guy no who's trying to say, we, we need to, we need to learn more. But, and that's what I'm trying to say, too, though, is that we need to... Obviously, you're not cast about by every wind of doctrine, every mm-hmm. challenge that yeah. happens. But these sometimes these challenges from science come up, and as a result, we have to we have to be honest with ourselves that we don't historically always read the Bible with the purest of eyes. Sometimes mm-hmm. we overread it, given our context or our cultural biases. So I'm just saying that where we know the scriptures speak clearly, we speak clearly and boldly. Where mm-hmm. we are not sure, we say what we think and we say it clearly, but we also hold it lightly at points and say, well, okay, I'm open to discussing it. And I think that's what Andy's trying to get at, that sometimes you get people, though, who want to make these snap judgments immediately and make it, make it an issue of orthodoxy. And I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure that's right. Mm. Good stuff. So on to the next question. Good b- job, by the way, the one who wrote that in, though. That's excellent. Mm-hmm. Really appreciate the Fantastic. feedback. Yeah, thank you. So here's uh, another question from another listener. Uh, over the last month, Northview discussed the prosperity gospel and Creflo Dollar in particular. It might have been a little over a month now since mm-hmm. that. But anyway, Creflo Can Dollar. Clar- Can we clarify that? Uh, yeah, from the pulpit, I mentioned Creflo Dollar yes. in a sermon mm-hmm. uh, that was dealing with Acts chapter 20 and Paul's words to the Ephesian elders. And he was using him as an example of a false teacher who is after money. Right. Yeah. So I just want to place it in its context. Thank you. Yeah. 
so uh, the listener goes on to say, um, Jeff spoke about the twist that prosperity gospel preachers use when applying the scriptures. And then she goes on to say, there is a word faith preacher that one commentator describes as an amazing example of overcoming hurts and abuse and as giving spectacular advice, but at the same time depicts her as teaching deadly heresy. Is it possible to separate the advice from her teaching? Is it advisable to try, or should we not bother? Is this playing? Is this actually playing with fire? That's a really good question. That's a great question. Mm-hmm. When I, I mean, when I look at prosperity preachers on TV, um, I'm, I'm just reminded that, to me, that it reminds me that um, Satan comes as an angel of light, and uh, often. Uh, the the worst heresy is the kind that's like they preach ninety five percent truth and they've preached five percent something that is that twists that truth to uh, to lead you down a completely different path and not the narrow path not the narrow gate that we're called to follow. So can we let's let's start with what we know or what we would say we're we're pretty bold about saying uh, or believing. Uh, we would start by saying that, uh, like you said, there is such a thing as false teachers and that their approach that we know for sure in the church is that they do come as angels of light. Mm-hmm. So the idea that you would have somebody teaching some truth with some falsehood is should be expected. I'll give you another thing principle I think we know. We know that there's different kinds of false teaching. There's some on the level of heresy, and there's some that's not on the level of heresy. So I would want to make a distinction between those two, because uh, somebody who is teaching, you know, 95% orthodox doctrine and the other 5% is heresy is different than somebody who's teaching 95% good doctrine and 5%, you know, stuff that's questionable, or when I say questionable, I mean like they just hold a different view than I do about the global flood or the g- g- things that are sure. that we're not as sure about. Yeah. There's a right answer to that question, by the way. There was either local or global, and both. So, so yeah, mm-hmm. that you have to make a decision. Some, same thing with eschatology, same thing with gender roles. All the, there's a right or wrong yeah. issue, the answer, but at the end of the day, uh, somebody who teaches something contrary to that, is not a heretic, hmm. right? Right. So I would want to make sure that... So when I'm listening to somebody and I'm I'm discerning, we'd also want to say that to you, it's another principle, yeah. that every time you listen to anyone, if there's anything that the Berean church teaches us, that mm. we ought to be discerning regarding what we're hearing, yeah. knowing that there's false teaching about all this stuff going on, we should be discerning even with the people we trust the most, right? Yes. So we're discerning... But we come to the conclusion that what they're saying, this one person teaches, if they're word faith, right, which is mm-hmm. they believe that they create reality by the words that they use, you're going to have to make a decision about whether or not that is a foundational false teaching, meaning is that something that is actually right. really close to heresy, or is that yeah. something that's just, well, I don't know. Yeah. So I some of the... I, I have in my mind a picture of a particular uh, preacher who... Uh, I would use the very words that the emailer used mm-hmm. to describe her. And 
I would say that she is very dangerous, mm-hmm. remarkably dangerous, because I've listened to an awful lot of what she says. And Joyce Meyer is the name that uh, is coming to my mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that. And I make no apologies for, for saying out loud yeah. that I think Joyce Meyer is a very dangerous, dangerous teacher. Right. Because she is very, she, she's very poor with the Bible. She does not read it in its context. She is a word faith individual. She believes that you you can create your own destiny by the words you speak. There's not a lot of difference between her and what Creflo Dollar are teaching. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's there's a lot of evidence that I could give you to show that she is in it for the money and that she is uh, not equipped to do the work she's doing. Now, I'm going to leave it up to God whether or not she's a Christian or not, right. but I will say that she fits the bill for the kind of false teaching that we often talk about. Right. right. Isn't that part of the problem, though, that most... Most of the people have a, a lot of people have a difficult time figuring out if they are a false teacher or not. And then the lack of the spiritual maturity and the theological maturity to understand what they're, what they're actually engaging with when they're listening to these people. Yeah, so we've got, um, our, I was even having a, a talk with um, a barber a little while ago, and he was saying, he was talking about his Mormon neighbor, and he's like, but, you know, they pray the same God as we do. And I'm like, eh, I don't think so. Uh, here we've got, you've got somebody who's, who's saying, like, Mormonism believes that we're all gods or we all can be gods, and that God was once like we are, and that God, you know, uh, Satan is the brother of Jesus and, and all this kind of stuff. Like, this is not the same God, but they use the same language, mm-hmm. which is part of the problem. It's a big problem, right? Because we get these false teachers that get out there and they talk about things like faith, and they mean a completely different thing than what we mean mm-hmm. when we say that we need to have faith. And it's a little twist. I think that's, just, that's the challenge. It's a little twist. They'll say salvation is by grace through faith, but you have to have you have to prove to God that you are worthy of receiving His blessings. Mm-hmm. The reason that God's blessings are not coming upon you is because you are not speaking it out enough, because you don't believe it enough, because of whatever. So it actually becomes a works righteousness. Right. That's why I think it's a gospel gospel f- uh, abusement. Abusement, that's not a word, but abuse, <laughs> right? But do you understand what I mean? Like what, what you're doing there is you're abusing the gospel. You're actually turning Christianity into a works-based religion. Mm-hmm. Look, Joyce Meyer was asked once, uh, ex- explain Christianity. And she said, what's the core of, the, of Christianity? She said, it's, um, it's if you do the best you can, right, God will honor you. Mm. Okay, mm. so that, that's a Galatian heresy. Yep. That, that's, yep. No, that's the old covenant, that's, mm. If Jesus never came, I would have said, that's the heartbeat of Judaism, that right. if you do good, God will bless you. That's the, that's the conditions of the law and the covenant that was yeah. made. But the new covenant is not that. The new covenant is you stink at it, right? Mm-hmm. So God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to become a sin offering that he might fulfill the law for us. And so with all the implications... Therein, so can I? But so it's not a work based works based religion, but they've turned it into a works based religion, mm-hmm. and so and and but they make it sound like this great promise of reward and wealth sits out there if you just do the stuff the right way. But hey, and if you don't do it the right way, oh, I'm sorry, but look what I did. Like if you ever listen to Joyce Moore, that's her her chief argument is her own life. Look what mm. I did. I I'm like I. I, I used to be this way. I used to be that way. I used to do this. Yeah. And 
that that's not Christian either. Right. <laughs> right? Just because you had this, that's Tony Robbins. He'll yeah. say the same thing. Yeah. Or any motivational speaker anywhere will say, well, look at me in my life. It, I changed it. You can do it too. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is you can't change your life. Jesus is the only one who can be your substitute. Right. It, it seems to me that the the person that's asking the question here is, are, are they asking, you know, can I listen to, you know, the, such and such? They're, they're wondering, yeah, so the question is, is it advisable to try to separate her good advice from her false teaching? And one of the things that, that I think is important to understand as a Christian is that you are free to listen to, you know, listen to Joyce Meyer. Like, Absolutely. we're not Jehovah's Witnesses, you right, know, right. that say, listen, you, you only read what we tell you to read, and you can't right. read anything else. Totally. The question, though, is, is have you put in the work that do you have the depth to listen mm-hmm. to what she's saying? That's the question I would want to raise to the person who's, who's asking this question. And are there people who are speaking on this issue that are theologically mm. uh, astute, that you should mm. probably be listening to them more than you should be listening to her. Right. It's not like she's the only person who could be helpful, Well, and what, whoever this per- particular teacher is that you're referring to. And the idea that their advice is helpful, no doubt there's probably some great advice that, that can be helpful for so you, but, but there's, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. There, you right. can hear good advice from other sources, and once you've come to the point that you've, you've decided or discerned that the well is poison, you probably shouldn't keep drawing from it to try to... Or at least we'd say it's unwise, right? The chances of you getting right. poisoned by drawing from the poison well are, are pretty high. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what I mean to say is that even, even when there is good advice being spoken from people that, that we would say you, you ought not trust, doesn't mean you can't hear good advice from other people who are actually... So okay. more trusting. Can I tell you what's going on in my heart right now? As the, the shepherd in me wants yeah. to say run. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. Except I know, and I'm just being honest here, I know that I live in a culture where the worst possible thing or, is to say, that, to say that any one particular person is, is wrong. Okay? Yeah. The, the greatest heresy, in the words of Shailen, is to say that there is heresy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, so I, I understand that my voice is going out to people who already have that preconce- preconception that the worst thing possible, why do you have to be a witch hunter? Why do you have to be so close-minded? Why do you, I, I understand that. And yet there's the shepherd in me is like, but if there are actual wolves out there yeah. who will arise from among you, yes. Acts 20, mm-hmm. from among your own number... Man, every part of me wants to say, run for your lives away from them, and I'm getting my gun. Right. And by gun, I mean that as a metaphor, <laughs> Yeah. right? Because that's what shepherds it, do in this day and age. When the, wolf, when the wolf comes into the, into yes. the hen house, that's what you do. You, you protect the, yeah. the, the hens. And well, so I'm, yeah. Yeah, and that's why we warn. That's why we warn, right? Sorry, Andy, I cut you off. Go ahead. No, what I was going to say was, it seems, too, that there's this distinction. Like, one of the, my favorite resources is the teaching company. Uh, I love downloading lectures from different professors, right? Now, they're, they're not Christians, and I think there's a lot, though, that I can glean from them. Many of them. Many of them are atheists. I mean, I've even listened to courses by Bart Ehrman. Mm. But, I got, I feel, but you have the maturity to listen to those, added to the fact that I think there's a difference when, it, when you have somebody who's full out against the gospel or... Full, yeah. Like they're not they're not trying to 
sugarcoated or 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 tried to get close. I think your initial point was important, Paul, and that is it seems to me that it's much much more dangerous when it's ninety five percent there, right? That there's just that that little twist to it that makes me much more nervous than than somebody listened to their atheist professor because we are sure we as shepherds are have more confident that you will be able to discern the the 98% false te- the person who's wrong 98% of the time but yeah. 2% of the time and you we're we're pretty sure you can catch that we're not as sure that if those percentages are flipped Mm-hmm. that you'll be able to pick it up, as is evidenced by the size of the churches and followings yeah. of some of these people. Yeah. How big is Osteen's church? 40,000? Oh, no, it's like 50 or 60. 50 or 60. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's huge. Yeah, so um, Jeff referenced uh, an artist, a music artist named Shai Lin. He put out a song called False Teachers, uh, which names a whole bunch of people. And interestingly, he didn't actually get a lot of pushback he got, a, he got a little bit from the son of one of the people that he calls out um, who was offended by his song, but, and he engaged him in, a, in kind of this online back and forth thing. But really, none of the others really uh, pushed back. And, and this was a song that got, it got a lot of play in evangelical circles. So um, There needs to be an increasing uh, discernment ability among yeah. evangelicals. But, and yet at the same time, I also want to say the danger on the flip side of this is that you become, you, you become a heresy hunter. You yeah. become somebody yeah. who's, who every time someone says something to you that might challenge your particular viewpoint on a matter, you immediately shut it down and call it heresy, which is what we were talking about earlier, right? Yep. That, so I don't, how do you do that? It's very difficult to, you know, be humble and recognize you don't have all things right, and you still have a lot of things to learn, and yet at the same time, demand biblical, consistent, well-exegeted biblical um, evidence for the for the viewpoint that's being espoused. Mm-hmm. But I think you can do it. I mean, I actually think that's the path of orthodoxy. Yeah, and I think also this is a an important time to to give a shout out for not doing this in isolation. The fact that we all we all need other people around us who know things in other areas that we don't know. Mm. And so we need those people around us to say, hey, you're doing some really good work there, but actually I know a little bit more about this area, so let's let's tweak this. Whereas if we try to view it as it's just going to be me and my headphones and my podcasts and my journal, uh, it's, it's, you're not going to be able to do it yeah, on your own. Discernment's yeah. community work. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I get emails from time to time. People say, "Oh, I listen to so and so. What do you What do you think?" Not because they're looking for me to shut their ears off to that particular person. They're just trying to find out. Okay, so I'm, I'm trying to ask some people I trust. What do you think? You know this person? Do you know what they're teaching in this particular place? What do you think of that particular thing? And I try to be as honest as I can and put them in touch with people who might have even done more work on it than I have. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's what we're here to be a resource for you in those in those regards as well. Great. Good discussion, guys. Thanks for coming out today. Uh, For our listeners out there, thank you for listening. And uh, again, if you have more questions for us, the email is extra at northview.org. Have a great week. Bye.